we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Bercori, an executive director of the Center. And we have a uh, newsy episode this week because when we post this on Thursday, both President Biden and former President Trump are scheduled to be at the border, the Texas border, different parts of the border, obviously, because this issue has become such a hot issue. And the White House has floated trial balloons over the past couple of weeks about President Biden taking some kind of bold move, as they put it, or as CNN put it, an unprecedented step to stem illegal migration across the border, which, uh, first of all, exposes as a falsehood his claims that he's doing everything he can already, and there's nothing he can do without Congress giving him additional authorities. But specifically, I think is worth talking about what that kind of unprecedented step or bold move that the White House has said President Biden may take, which I expect he's probably going to be announcing Thursday when this podcast is posted. So this whole discussion could be moot, but I don't think so. And so to talk about what measure President Biden might take, why he would be taking it, and what the possible consequences could be, we have with us a repeat guest, our own Andrew Arthur. Art Arthur, who wrote a blog post this week on this, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Art, thanks for joining us. And why would President Biden feel the need uh, to go to the border? Are his poll numbers bad? Yeah, no, his poll numbers on this issue are exceptionally bad. We've seen a number of things that have happened in recent months, basically since late November, early December in polling. And that is the American people are becoming more aware. One, of the fact that there is a crisis at the southwest border, and two, who's to blame for it? They largely blame, in the polling, President Biden and his migrant release policies for the fact that about 3.4 million aliens have been released into the United States since he took office, and for the fact that the border is a disaster. So, you know, this is a politically expedient move. I don't think that this is anything that the president or his DHS secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, would be doing voluntarily. But, you know, as we'll discuss, I think it's largely for show because this isn't the first time that the president has floated a trial balloon like this. So what would this supposed unprecedented or bold move to crack down on illegal immigration, something he hasn't done for three years, what could that be? They, there haven't been any details released. Like I said, I expect the president, when he speaks down in Brownsville, Texas, on Thursday, will fill in details maybe. But if you speculate, what might that be? Well, we've actually seen some reference in news reports, primarily from CNN, 
about what the president is thinking about. And it basically involves barring aliens who have entered the United States illegally between the ports of entry, that is, you know, jumping the line or crossing the river or the desert, from being able to apply for asylum. That's pretty much it. It doesn't appear that there's any proposal within the White House to reinstate remain in Mexico to use the authorities that the president has under Section 235B2C of the INA to send people who are applying for asylum back across the border to await their removal hearings, nothing like that. So it focuses almost exclusively on some plan to funnel migrants away from the border itself and to the ports of entry where they could then go and make their asylum claims, which of course is already happening and has been ongoing ever since January the 12th of last year. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask is DHS already issued a rule, the CLAP rule for short, the point of which is specifically to do that. It just doesn't seem to have actually been enforced or implemented. Yeah, and you know, this story really all begins back on January the 5th when the White House issued a fact sheet, which was pretty light on facts, but it talked about these initiatives to encourage people to use the CBP-1 app to pre-schedule their illegal entries at the ports of entry instead of you know, crossing the border illegally. It promised that if they crossed the border illegally, some of them were going to be sent back to Mexico, even if they weren't Mexicans, but that they would have the opportunity to avail themselves of those interviews at the ports of entry. That program, which I call the CBP-1 app interview scheme, actually was implemented into law well after it was begun in a rule that was published on May the 16th, backdated to May the 11th, called Circumvention of Lawful Pathways Rule, which is the CLAP rule to which you allude. Mm -hmm. And the CLAP rule did two main things. First, it formally implemented the CBP-1 app interview scheme. But two, it created a rebuttable presumption that aliens who had entered the United States illegally between the ports of entry would not be eligible for asylum. Right. And honestly, the CLAP rule actually did have an effect for a couple of months. Until the smugglers figured out all the the loopholes in the CLAP rule and figured out how vigorously it was going to be enforced, we actually saw the number of apprehensions at the southwest border, which were a proxy for the number of people entering illegally, drop. We saw them drop in May. We saw them drop in June. And then they started to tick up in July. And of course, they hit an all-time record of nearly 250,000 in December. But, you know, the main idea behind this rule is exactly what CNN says the president is thinking about, and that is to bar people who enter illegally between the ports of entry from receiving asylum. And so, you know, it seems to me it's entirely possible that whatever the president is announcing is likely to be a continuation of this strategy, the broader strategy of the Biden administration, which is not to reduce the number of inadmissible aliens let into the United States, but rather to make sure that they come through ports of entry and are, frankly, illegally admitted to the country by CBP, rather than crossing illegally and then being arrested by the Border Patrol. In other words, as I wrote some months ago, the administration basically is saying to illegal aliens, don't break the law by crossing between ports of entry, let us break the law by letting you illegally through the lawful crossing points. 
And my sense, I don't know, but my sense is whatever they announce could be more along that line. Same number of people get in, they just walk in through the crossing points and are illegally waved in rather than being arrested by the Border Patrol, which leads to all kinds of inconvenient news coverage and drone footage. Yeah, no, and you know, it's very important to touch on these points because that CBP-1 app scheme currently allows more than 500,000 illegal aliens to enter the United States, or at least to show up for interviews at the ports of entry. And we know from congressional disclosures by the House Judiciary Committee that about 95.8% of all the people that schedule appointments at the ports under that scheme are then paroled into the United States, which means that they're immediately eligible to receive work authorization. If they're from Cuba and Haiti, they're automatically eligible to receive Medicaid and food stamps and cash payments. So yeah, I mean, you know, it really has worked in terms of deflection because it has deflected the attention of most of the media from the fact that a half million people are still being funneled into the United States, but, you know, they don't show up in those Border Patrol apprehension figures. So, you know, which really is what most in the media focus on. So it looks like the problem's getting better. It's not really getting better, but on paper, I guess it is. Right. And now in the blog post that you wrote about this issue, just to fill people in, it's Biden reportedly considering executive action on border crisis. We'll have a link as I said in the show notes, you were kind of making the point that there may be sort of a longer term strategy in that whatever the president does announce this week, it's likely to be this week, that they may expect to be sued by their frenemies, as one judge put it, on the outside, the activist groups, and that they would then settle and that whatever announcement they make about a new, bold, unprecedented policy would quietly go away after a couple months because they would settle the lawsuits to to end it. In other words, that this is there's a certain amount of kabuki going on here. If you could elaborate on that. Sure, absolutely. So, again, you know, the administration implemented this clap rule and it was quickly challenged in two separate court actions. First, it was challenged in the District Court for the District of Columbia in a suit called MA versus Mayorkas. In addition, there was ongoing litigation that's been dragging on since the Trump administration tried something similar out in California, and that's a case called East Bay Sanctuary Covenant versus Biden. It started out as East Bay Sanctuary Covenant versus Trump. But in each of these cases, the plaintiffs are challenging the CLAP rule, or at least that part of the CLAP rule that you know, makes it harder for illegal aliens to apply for asylum. And what they charge is that this violates Section 208 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which governs asylum. So those cases, you know, have been litigated. DOJ has been litigating those cases. But, you know, something exceptional has happened in recent weeks. In M.A. versus Mayorkas, there was a filing by both parties on February the 5th asking the court to hold the case in abeyance for 60 days so that they can engage in settlement negotiations. That was followed up almost at the same time in the East Bay Sanctuary case by a similar statement that, you know, asked the court again, and that one's actually at the circuit court, at the Ninth Circuit, asking the court to sit on the case again for 60 days 
so that the parties can engage in settlement negotiations. The one in the D.C. District Court, basically the judge just signed off on it. And because the Ninth Circuit case is in the Court of Appeals, it's a three-judge panel. Two of the judges just signed off on the request for 60 days to engage in settlement negotiations. But one judge, a Trump appointee named Lawrence Van Wyck, had had enough. Van Wyck had actually criticized previous efforts to enjoin Trump administration rules that would have, again, made it harder for aliens who entered the United States illegally to apply for asylum. And Van Dyke, you know, dissented from those. When it came to the latest request, you know, he's like, look, here's what I think is happening. I think that this is a political effort, a purely political effort to toughen up the rules for political purposes. The problem is that those rules are unpopular with the president's base. So outside groups sue, the case is litigated for a while, and then DOJ quietly engages in settlement negotiations for no other purpose than to kill the rule that the administration had, you know, put out there for political purposes to make it harder to get into the United States. Van Dyke actually took this one step further. He said, in addition to the clap rule that was at issue in the East Bay Sanctuary case right now, there are also those Trump rules that are at issue. And if DOJ actually appealed those to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would have reversed prior Ninth Circuit decisions in East Bay Uh. that would make it harder for either a future Trump administration or for a future administration to re-implement those rules and actually make it harder for people who enter the United States illegally to apply for asylum. So, you know, he's sort of calling everybody out on this, and it's rather remarkable. But the funny thing is, Mark, that, you know, what Van Wyck said is a public document. It's actually published on the Ninth Circuit's website. And yet, as these, you know, outside uh, media outlets discuss this tough new executive action that the president's going to take, they never mention that a circuit court judge, a federal judge pretty high up in the, uh, in the pecking order, is throwing a red flag about all of this, which is why he dissented from the request made for a 60-day hold on the East Bay case. So in a sense, what the judge suspects is going on is that the administration is going to want to issue tough rules for electoral purposes, and they'll probably defend them in court for a little while against their own, frankly, outside supporting activist groups that are suing to stop them. And then when they're no longer politically necessary, the new rules are no longer politically necessary, then they cave and uh, you know come to a settlement with their, as the judge put it, I love this, with their frenemies. The quote here that the judge you're talking about who dissented in putting off a decision, in other words, in that delay, he said, at the quote, at the very least, it looks like the administration and its frenemies on the other side of this case are colluding to avoid playing their politically fraught game during an election year. That's not the kind of stuff, I mean, you know judicial decisions more than I do, but uh, that doesn't sound like the kind of thing you usually get from judges. No, it's, you know, this isn't uh, Marbury versus Madison. <laughs> this isn't, you know, the sort of lofty rhetoric that we normally see 
federal judges engage in. And, you know, Van Dyke does it for a reason. He wants people to pay attention to what's going on here and what he sees is going on here. Again, he's a Trump appointee, but, you know, I'll also remind you that in earlier parts of the East Bay litigation, when Trump called, you know, certain judges Obama appointees, Chief Justice Roberts smacked him down and said there are no Obama appointees and there are no Trump appointees. There are federal judges. So, yeah, I mean, it's curious because all of this plays out. The media gets all excited. They start to slather at the prospect that, you know, something is going to come out of the Biden administration. It's going to be almost a, a deus ex machina where, you know, the Biden administration is going to suddenly solve the border. That's going to take that issue off the table and he's going to ride it to reelection. In reality, and the much more interesting thing is it looks like that, you know, this is just one big scam and a continuation of the scam. One, I'm a little surprised that, you know, CNN didn't mention the fact that Biden had already tried something like this. And two, you know, as they discuss this, they haven't mentioned this rather prominent decision in dissent, albeit, but prominent decision that makes such strong claims. This is the kind of stuff that, you know, reporters, you know, normally look for if for no other reason than to smack it down. But there's actually another point of this that goes into the ongoing debate. As you know, there was a Senate border bill that was negotiated. It was negotiated by three members, Jim Langford of Oklahoma, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, and Chris Murphy of Connecticut that was supposed to be this great bill. And I've explained on our website numerous times, and other people have, all of the flaws in this bill and about how it would just make things worse. Nobody in the media apparently bothered to, to actually read the bill because they just parrot the talking points on it and says it's great and it would fix everything. That's ended up in a political debate where Democrats are now blaming Donald Trump, who, by the way, isn't an elected official at the present time, for the failure of that bill. Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, you know, came back and said, look, one, this is a bad bill. And two, we don't have to give the president any additional authority because he already has authority. And the one authority that Speaker Johnson highlighted is something called Section 212F of the INA, which enables the president to suspend the entry of any alien or all aliens or any class of alien at any time he wants. And, he, and Johnson's like, look, the president really wanted to resolve this, he would use 212F. One of the things that those in the media come back at Johnson with is, well, President Trump tried this already, and the court said he couldn't use that 212F power. If you look closely, the case that they're talking about is East Bay Sanctuary Covenant. It's the exact same case that Van Dyke is dissenting from right now, the very same case that he's saying the Supreme Court needs to take this up so that it can resolve all the mistakes that we've made in this case. This is a huge issue for the American people, as we've discussed. We're seeing the impacts of this, not just at the border, but in cities and towns across the United States. This issue is going to be with us for a decade or more, what the Biden administration has done. And it's probably going to cost at the end of the day, at least a trillion dollars to actually resolve all of this and to you know pay the fiscal costs, the municipal costs, and the federal costs that the Biden administration's border policies have incurred. You know, this is a very big issue. And yet, the only treatment that is given to any of these issues is very much 
superficial. You know, it's just on the surface. The press repeats talking points. It doesn't really even do basic research on any of these issues to figure out how all of this started. And this is just more of the same. I'm shocked, shocked to find that White House reporters deal with substantive issues like this in a superficial manner. Uh, I, you know, it's, I, you knocked me over with a feather. I have a couple of other points on this issue specifically. First of all, if there is some kind of settlement, in other words, if the administration goes through this kabuki, they announce some new, bold, unprecedented, tough measure, it you know, reduces illegal crossings a little bit for a couple months, and then they cave and settle with the activist groups, which, which is where they hired their staff from to begin with, would a settlement like that then tie the hands of future administrations? I mean, uh, but, and the flip side is, if there isn't a settlement and it say it goes to the Supreme Court, would that mean that the Supreme Court would be revisiting some of the issues it took up in that Arizona case back under the Obama administration that limited what states could do? In other words, um, this could go either way to help future efforts to limit immigration or to impede them. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. So if the Supreme Court were to take this up, you know, it wouldn't really undo those Texas cases because those were based on standing. But what it would do is it would clear the field for a future administration, again, be it Donald Trump or any other president, to then enact policies that actually would do what the Biden administration contends it wants to do. And that is to make it harder for aliens who enter the United States illegally to exploit our generous asylum laws that would, you know, funnel people to the ports of entry, you know, where, again, they're going to come in, but it's going to free up Border Patrol agents to stop the drugs and the criminals and the terrorists who don't want to get caught. So, you know, that would be the main thing that a Supreme Court review of this and a proper decision probably would enable. The flip side of that is, if this gets settled, it's going to create bad Ninth Circuit law that's going to make it next to impossible for a future administration to actually secure the border. Because, you know, again, they're going to have to write rules that write around all of the problems that the Ninth Circuit has identified thus far and everything that's included in the settlement agreement. And then it's going to have to go through the same thing. And I can tell you exactly how these cases are going to go. It's going to go to the Northern District of California. It's going to go to the Western District of Washington. It's going to go to the District of Maryland. It's going to go to the District Court for the District of Columbia, where they're going to find friendly judges in a friendly circuit. And as with Trump versus Hawaii, which was, you know, the big 212F case under the Trump administration that validated the president's expansive authority under Section 212F, it's going to hold up the implementation of those border improvements for 18 months to two years. And that, you know, assumes that everything goes appropriately. When you're asking an administration that doesn't really like border security to defend cases in which border security is at issue, you're pretty much going to get the decisions that you expect. Again, Merrick Garland's not the attorney general of the Biden administration. He's the attorney general of the United States. And I'm not saying anything against the way that DOJ is uh, litigating these cases, but read Judge Van Wyck's dissent and see what he has to say, and you might come away with a very different sense. So in a sense, I mean, 
if they do end up settling these cases, if the Biden administration, you know, comes up with some kind of activist approved settlement to make these cases go away, in a sense, that's kind of contingency planning in case they lose to make sure that, as you said, if there is another Trump administration, that they again would not be able to actually do much or at least try to limit and slow walk any changes they make in order to keep the border as open as possible as they can. And this is a real problem with this whole sue and settle concept, not even just in immigration, but even in uh, other areas. In fact, this is a little off of the immigration topic, but when Trump came in, didn't he instruct DOJ to end, it was a practice in this sue and settle issue where left-wing activist groups sue a Democratic administration, Democratic administration pretends to object and then settles and gives them what they want. But in addition to that, requires payments to various activist groups as sort of a way of generating revenue for a lot of them. And it seems to me this whole sue and settle practice itself, whether on immigration or anything else, really is a problem. And I don't, I mean, has, have you, are you aware of any thinking about how to try to limit the possibility of using this by, you know, for political purposes? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the Supreme Court itself has spoken out, you know, when it sees sue and settle, but it hasn't really done anything. And I'm not really sure that it could do anything that would undermine things like that. They seem to be waiting for a big case in which they can announce some sort of precedent that would make it harder for people to do that. But, you know, we don't even need to go outside the immigration context for what you're describing. If you remember, on the campaign trail, one of the things that Joe Biden, you know, complained about the Trump administration doing was family separation. Family separation right. was, you know, under a policy called zero tolerance that existed for about six weeks in the middle of 2018. And yet, you know, it became this bugbear for everybody that didn't like Donald Trump, that he was separating mothers from their children and everything was horrible. After Biden took office, his DOJ entered into settlement negotiations with a class of uh, individuals who claimed they'd been separated from their kids. And you'll probably remember this part. The negotiations leaked and there was, you know, a proposal to pay every one of those kids and parents $450,000 apiece, yep. which is a nice chunk of change where I come from. And You know, I'm, I don't live in D.C. anymore. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's a prime example of this. And again, the courts don't like it. The Congress can, of course, always, you know, take action to limit the ability of DOJ, regardless of whoever the attorney general is, to do this. And in fact, Congress has the ability to actually set the jurisdiction for the judicial branch. We see that in Section 242 of the Immigration and Nationality Act with respect to any number of immigration things. So yeah, Congress could act, and it's possible that the Supreme Court gets angered enough by this scheme that it could act as well. But that's all down the road. Right now, we're looking at the game itself. Right, right. Interesting. Okay, well, thank you, Art. And we will uh, probably around the time this podcast is posted is when we will find out what the bold, unprecedented moves that the president is supposedly going to announce actually are. 
and we will uh, explore them, assuming there's anything that we, you know, didn't already know, which I'm not sanguine about, but they're going to package it for political purposes as some kind of new bold step. And as it, their, their frenemies outside the administration will almost certainly sue to stop it. They're already issuing press releases saying, based on what the news reporting is, that it's awful and the end of the world, et cetera. So we will follow this drama in the future and probably have you back to talk about it then. Thank you, Art. Thanks so much, Mark. And finally this week, a different aspect of the border crisis, and this is the security vulnerabilities it shows. Our Todd Benzman had a piece recently in the New York Post about reports of uh, very large numbers of Chinese illegal aliens crossing the border in the San Diego area. In fact, there are now more Chinese crossing there than there are Mexicans. And it's important not to get too carried away about this. You hear commentary about military age males as though it's, uh, you know, a, uh, they're sneaking in huge numbers of terrorists and saboteurs. But the fact is that while most of these people are almost certainly just regular dishwashers and what have you, in other words, ordinary illegal aliens, not asylum seekers either, but there's no way that the Chinese Communist Party is not using this opportunity to slip in various spies or saboteurs. It's simply not possible that that's not the case. The fact is the there have been a number of Chinese spies who have been identified and arrested who have come in in a variety of ways, uh, foreign students, uh, scholars, uh, other, other ways. And there's, there's just no way that the Chinese intelligence services are not taking advantage of this opportunity in the same way that the Cuban government did back in 1980 when they used the Mariel Boatlift of that time which was made up mostly of ordinary people, but to use that flow to not only dispense with criminals from their jails, but also to insert intelligence operatives and other bad guys. This is clearly happening with the case of the Chinese flow in San Diego. In fact, in the San Diego Border Patrol sector, in the first quarter of the fiscal year, Something like 15% of all arrests at the border were from China. I mean, this is unprecedented, and it's happening because of Biden's policies. And some of this would be happening regardless. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's no question that various foreign bad guys are going to use various means to get bad guys into the United States. But when the numbers are smaller because policies are tighter, it makes it more difficult to get in undetected and easier for our law enforcement and security either to stop people or to properly vet and examine who people are so that they can have a better chance of actually uncovering some kind of malintent. When you've got this kind of huge flow incentivized by Biden's catch and release policies, you know, the Border Patrol. Uh, not to mention the FBI and other law enforcement, at the border, they're essentially in the position of that clip from uh, Lucy in the Chocolate Factory. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, just Google Lucy in the Chocolate Factory, and you'll see it's a, 
it's a metaphor for being overwhelmed by numbers. And that's what's happening at the border. And it's not just Venezuelan gangs that are taking care of this. That's become an issue. New immigrant gang problem, a cartel really, that apparently makes MS-13 and the rest of them look like pikers, but also bad political actors, whether they're the Iranian mullahs or Putin, or of this case, the Chinese Communist Party, using the flow of ordinary Chinese illegal aliens attracted by Biden's invitation to come here to, to slip in various kinds of bad guys, which we will undoubtedly find out about in the coming years. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. If you have any comments, complaints, suggestions for future shows, etc., please just email us at center at cis.org, and I hope you'll tune in next week. 